0: Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, we are fortunate to have as our guest outgoing UMBC President Dr. Freeman Robowski. Dr. Robowski was jailed at 12 years old by infamous Birmingham, Alabama Sheriff Bull Connor for participating in the 1963 Children's March organized by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. From there, He went on to graduate high school at 15 and ultimately earned his BA and MA in mathematics, as well as a PhD in higher education administration, before eventually taking the helm at UMBC. These accolades only begin to scratch the surface of his extraordinary life and legacy. Without further ado, let's hear from the man himself.
1: Hello and welcome. This is Sally Amaruso. I'm Chief Partner Officer for EAB, and I am very excited today to be joined by University of Maryland, Baltimore County President, author, and civil rights leader, Freeman Hrabowski. Dr. Hrabowski, welcome.
2: Hi, and Sally, please call me Freeman. Please. <laughs> will do,
1: will do. Well, Freeman, you have an impressive list of titles, but this really only begins to scratch the surface of an extraordinary life and an extraordinary man who was once named by Time magazine as one of the nation's best college presidents and who was appointed by President Barack Obama to chair the newly created President's Advisory Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans back in 2012 Freeman is it okay if we start with your formative years before we jump into your work at UMBC sure, That's fine. Sure. Sure. Great. sure. Well I understand that education was of paramount importance to your parents as it was to mine. Yeah. What would you like people to know about how you were raised and about the impact that that had on you?
2: I appreciate the question. I often say that we're all products of our jobs and experiences, and we should go back to that. We should think about them and the impact that those experiences have had on our lives. And for me, growing up in a home of teachers, who believed in the importance of reading and thinking uh, and and who always taught me to believe in myself. Those were the messages, whether I was in the segregated schools or in my church, in the neighborhood. and, And I keep those messages with me because as I think about my role as an educator, I'm always wanting to make sure that my students have a strong sense of self, that they believe in themselves. And as a as a math teacher of my life, I always say, if you give me a child who can read well, I can teach her to solve math word problems. So at the core of what I believe in is that notion of strong thinking and reading and discussing ideas. And that's, that's what I take from my childhood experience, including the, the civil rights movement and having the chance to to march with the children and to spend the week in jail and, and to hear the message from Dr. King that that we could make the world better, that the world could be better tomorrow than today, but it will take us to do it. So the, the notion of empowerment of people, those
1: are the messages. So you, you mentioned sort of in passing segregated schools, you grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Yes. And this was in the midst of the civil rights movement. So- yep. your experience was very shaped by that and and you were only was it 12 when you marched in the children's march
2: that's exactly right i had skipped a couple of grades i had older parents you know children of older parents are older somehow and so (laughs) you grew up feeling like you're a little adult and i did i did Uh, i was i was uh sitting in the back of church and dr king made the statement that if the children participate in this peaceful protest all of america will know that even our young people know the difference between right and wrong. And Sally, I was simply tired of those hand-me-down books from the white schools. We did not have the resources. And it was so degrading to think, I mean, just the idea that we weren't good enough to get new books. And my parents weren't allowed to bring, I couldn't bring new books in because it'd be different from other children, you see. So the the teachers were so hardworking, but we didn't have the resources. That experience led me to want to go to March and to see what difference we could make and quite frankly we did make a difference you
1: were 12 and you you actually spent some time in jail didn't
2: you yeah 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 i spent a, a, a horrific week in jail we were treated like animals like slaves too many people uh, some of the kids were younger and crying a lot and not enough bathrooms and you can imagine being packed on the floors for a week it was awful it really was but in the middle of the week dr king came with our parents, and we're standing, we're outside, we're inside and in there out there. And he said, What you children do this day will have an impact on children who've not yet been born. And it was there was something profound about that. And we but the, the question I kept asking myself is, where will I be in the years to come? What's gonna happen to us? So it was a time of reflection, of fear, but of hope, but of hope. And that that's of all the things I can say, uh, there was great hope that that we were making a difference, yes.
1: Um, And so you went on from this segregated educational experience, um, getting the the hand-me-down books. Yeah. To to a very um, remarkable uh, academic career. So you graduated from Hampton University, highest honors in mathematics. Yes. Uh, You earned your master's and PhD um, from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Really impressive. Did you know throughout that whole time that you wanted to work in academia?
2: I did. My I knew, but I I always thought I'd be teaching kids. And and my mother was always afraid I'd become a high school principal. She said, you know, you run your mouth so much and they're gonna see you smart. And they're gonna want to. She wanted me to stay in the classroom and work with the children. You know, she there was nothing more noble. My dad had left teaching. Uh, and had been a principal of a rural school to work in a steel uh, factory because you could make more money as a laborer than you could as a teacher. So he worked three jobs. And so I saw them, but, but, but even in the, in, the, in the steel factory, he was teaching the, the men, the, the black men, um, preparing them to go and take the GED. And my mother taught in the, in the daytime math and reading, but she also taught in the GED program. So they had this pipeline of men in the steel factories who wanted to get their high school diplomas. And literally, he would work with them. And so I always knew teaching, and it was just so important. I thought I'd be teaching kids. I think it was later on. Um, Actually, I was in a summer program at Tuskegee, uh, sponsored by the National (laughs) Science Foundation, in math. And this professor comes in, and he puts a problem on the board. And this was in high school and nobody could solve it. And he said, when you can solve it, come and see me. And all the kids got really upset because they said, if you're a real teacher, you would tell us how to solve it. And he just walked okay. out. Now, I was young. I was, I was 13. I was going to the 11th grade. They were 16. They had the cynicism of a, of a, of a 16-year-old. I okay. had the naivete of a 13-year-old a little math nerd. And I said, no, he believes in us. He thinks we can do this. And so that was my first experience in pulling the big kids together to work on this problem for two days. But as he left, they gave his name and they said he was doctor and they gave his name. And I said, no, he's not a physician. They said, no, he's a PhD. And I said, well, what's a PhD? And they said, oh, that's the highest degree you can get. And I said, looking in the mirror at my little fat face, I'm going to get a PhD. And I'm going to be like him, a professor of math at, at a university, and that was the experience that led to my wanting to go to grad school and and wanting to be in a college setting. It was it was that, so that led me to say, yeah, I wanted to be in a college environment. And
1: you be you did become a professor of uh, of mathematics, yes, of right? statistics, research. Right. So lead us through your career, starting um, sure. with your sure. assistant deanship for student yes. services.
2: And you know, it's I, I had gone to Illinois, and remember that. Um, The Hampton experience was wonderful, and it was an HBCU. Many of my teachers were white, and it was the first time I'd had white professors, other than when my parents sent me to Massachusetts to to see what it would be like to be in class with white kids, to Springfield, Massachusetts. And what I learned in that experience was, first of all, that the education was amazing, very rigorous, but I also learned that even the teachers would not speak to me. And that was literally in the 60s. Um, they I would raise my hand, they would look right through me. I, I came to understand what Ralph Ellison meant by the invisible man. And I always remembered that feeling of being not important. And that that helped to shape my thinking about what I wanted to do as an educator. But I went through the Hampton experience, Illinois, again, only black in my classes, obviously no black professors. And but there were a couple who were very supportive. And, and what I will tell you is this that those experiences. Led to my wanting to do a combination of things. I loved teaching. Um, I'd moved from pure math, abstract algebra, the masters, to going into administration, higher ed administration, and statistics. I became the stat guru in the social sciences. I wanted to apply it because nobody would talk with me about group theory and algebra. And, and none of the guys, there were only men, unfortunately, white men in white the men. In grad program. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was it. it was, and only one woman out of 100 faculty, and she was not tenured not tenure track but she was wonderful to me but but the point is that so i I began doing the combination of teaching stat and working as an assistant dean and then associate dean at a place and then dean at an hbcu and then moving to to umbc uh, as vice provost responsible for the undergraduate experience the academic undergrad experience and that was back in the late 80s and the biggest challenge we faced was that so many students came to umbc with an interest in stem And um, Black students were not. This was a predominantly white school. Interestingly, UMBC was founded at such a time, in the 60s, that students of all races could come here. Now remember, Maryland is still the South. I say the Upper South, but it is the South, all right? And so every institution was founded either for Blacks or for whites. That was it. That was the way people thought at that time. But we were founded for students of all races and began getting students of all backgrounds Uh, And uh, the the challenge, though, was that the vast majority of minority students, black students, were not succeeding in science. But when I looked at the data, what I found was that the majority of students of all races were not succeeding in science. And that, that really was reaffirming what I'd seen at Illinois when kids from Chicago would come down and compete against kids from the suburbs and did not do well. But the other part was it wasn't just about minority students. The vast majority of white students were not doing well. It's just that the base was larger, so you had a certain percentage making it. And that that began to shape our thinking here about the notion that if we can figure out how to help one group, minority students, for example, we can learn things that can help all students and and the need to be more specific in looking at the challenges that different groups were facing. And that was from the, the 80s, and that began to shape the future of UMBC, as we thought about the notion we want to make sure students of all backgrounds can succeed in STEM, but also in the humanities and social sciences.
1: Let's talk about UMBC because I grew up in Baltimore um, and it's been quite phenomenal to watch UMBC blossom and evolve. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, when I have visited campus um, over these more recent years, it, what a beautiful campus. I mean, it is just gorgeous, but it has changed a lot, right? Across your 30-year tenure as school president. UMBC was ranked the number one up-and-coming university in the U.S. for six consecutive years um, until U.S. News & World Report finally retired that award and then began including you all in in its annual Most Innovative National Universities list. Tell us about some of the changes that you made when you took the helm 30 years ago.
2: And, you know, so I'm very proud that we're both in that top 10 for innovative universities, but also for best teaching at the undergrad level in the top 10. Now, here's the point. We are now uh, a model for international and domestic diversity. It would surprise you to know 60 percent of our students at the undergrad level, Sally, have at least one parent from another country. Number one, really. People don't think of Baltimore, but this is the corridor. This is the Baltimore Washington corridor. So many students have parents, um, one of whom is from the military, from another country. Uh, Others have from the intelligence community, from the diplomatic community. But the key is this. So we like looking at people who have this international background, but also students who may come out of rural Maryland or from New York City or wherever, and how you bring these people together to teach them how to work effectively in diverse groups. And we do that. And one of the points I make that sometimes upsets people is that we're not teaching students how to work with and live with people different from themselves. It's one thing to talk about making sure every group appreciates its own culture. We want to do that. But I like to think about the genius of the end versus the tyranny of the all. And that's from Jim Collins. I wish I'd said it. But the idea is, yes, you can learn your own culture, but you really need to learn how to work with people from all backgrounds, different religions, different parts of the world. And that's what we work to do. And and we are an MSI now. Um, We are now a minority serving institution. But what people don't realize is we're in that category because of the large Asian population. People don't like to, to make the point, but it is true that you have many more people from Asian backgrounds who are succeeding in science and technology, and there are reasons for that uh, that we can talk about. But the key is that, so we are, the largest minority group is Asian, and they are over 25%, and the Black population is about 18%, Latino, probably seven or eight. So we are over half, over half minority. And it's what we say we look like what America's going to look like just because you've got these people from all these backgrounds and you have people in each of those groups succeeding and something you'll appreciate from EAB. And we are very strong on, on talking about analytics and focus groups and understanding our students and not just lumping them into those different general categories, but to look at the backgrounds of each student and not assume we know them because they look one way or the other. Very important message in higher education.
1: Why do you think Asian Americans do so well, or Asians just generally?
2: Sure. Yeah, so you, know, well. I, you know. I know you know I've, I've got the answer, and this is a, and <laughs> everything boils down to math. i'm I'm so biased. I'm so biased. We can always <laughs> you know whether it's about nature right, and patterns or looking at connections to music, but let me give you my answer. Let's start. This. I always often ask American audiences, do you think there are more uh, very high achieving Chinese and Indian children or more very high achieving American children in math and science. And people out of great pride will say, Oh, America, right? And and my first comment is, of course I love my country, but the fact is it's math. 1.3 billion Chinese, 1.2 billion Indians. You put those two together, you have 2.5 billion people. The top 10% of any group will be extraordinary. Now, that's 250 million super high achievers. America only has a little over 300 million people. So you've got as many geniuses in that, you know, at that level as we have citizens. Now, you add to that the fact that people who come from any country, and you look at their children, you'll find a level of intensity. So whether they come from Nigeria or from Barbados or from India, you see that those kids are the beneficiaries of that intensity of that family. And we saw it in New York throughout the 20th century from European families. Now we see it from other parts of the world, Asian, African. And, and so you've got the intensity, the, the, the idea of the immigrants who come in and who really appreciate what America has to offer. And then you add on the math I gave you from before, and you see why. At UMBC, when you look at our graduate programs in computing, they are heavily people from other countries, for example. You know, our undergrads are typically the children of people from other countries. But our grad students come directly, particularly in the STEM areas. And that, that is the reason that you see such a heavy Asian influence. And I say it's, it's wonderful because these children of immigrants and people who come directly, can inspire us to be better. That's, I mean, I say it is a message for us. We can be better. They show us what's possible in the world in thinking about the human possibilities.
1: I would concur on the intensity being the child of immigrants from Asia. (laughs) Well, it definitely resonates with me. You know, UNBC is one of the nation's leading sources of African American PhDs in science and engineering. Yes. Almost yes. half of your seniors go to grad school immediately.
2: Yes. So of people, all races. That's that's what's nice. Forty of all races. And we are let me just give you some specificity. We're the number one producer of blacks who black bachelor's recipients who go on to complete PhDs at around the country in the natural sciences and engineering, and we're the number one a producer of black baccalaureate recipients who go on to get MD PhDs from the most prestigious places in the country. We produce our own PhDs, but those statistics are specifically focused on that strength. The good news about that, Sally, is we do that as number one, but we are large producers, producers of large numbers of whites and Asians and Latinos who go on exactly and do the same thing. And not only in the sciences, but also in the humanities and social sciences.
1: When I speak to higher ed leaders who are really struggling with trying yes. to address equity gaps, yeah, I'd love for you to just give us a sense of how you accomplished sure. this sure. And, and perhaps highlight the Meyerhoff program. Which I is...
2: appreciate that. I appreciate that. The first book in, in our, my book, my colleagues and I wrote, The Empowered University, says it's not about me, it's about us. You know, we in America, we're in society in general, in human society, look to the leader of the country. Right. And you see that in Ukraine right they have the leader, right? The one person. And then there's some ways that a top person sets a tone. It's true. But the real work is done by a just a broad range of leaders. And what has made the difference at UMBC will be wonderful faculty and staff and administrators who have been moving in the same direction, saying we can do a better job with these people from these different backgrounds. And I often tell people, look at our TED talk, my TED talk, which is on the four pillars of success in science, which can also be used for life or in the humanities. And it is high expectations, building community among the people. It takes scientists to produce scientists, but it takes people in the arts to produce people in the arts. You pull them into the work. And then let's look at rigorous evaluation. Too often in in higher education, we make draw conclusions uh, based on anecdotal information. We need to have the discipline to use analytics in understanding what's happening so that our decision-making can be much more data-driven uh, based on the facts, not on impressions. And so those are the, the pillars of success. And that's what we've used. And if somebody wants to look at our MAHA program that is started for African-Americans and now has students of all races, but These students, it's heavily minority, and what they have in common is an interest in addressing the issue of underrepresentation in STEM. And so what's key about that is you can look at the 60 Minutes piece on the MyHoff program. It's only 15 minutes, and it gives you a sense, and you see the community. The part of that piece, though, that got me into trouble, Sally, I got more hate mail because we take their phones away. We take... During the week, we take their phones away, and there were so many people who said, this is America. You cannot take a college student's phone. It's it's in the summer bridge program. It's like boot camp. And during the week, we take the phone. Well, how do we make that decision? Listening to students. As one group finished one year, we said, what else could we do to help you become more connected to each other? They said, next year, take the phones away. Because if high school students in the summer have their phones, they're talking to their friends and their mothers and everybody else, they don't oh. get to know, you know, and it, it worked beautifully, but, but I got blamed
1: for it. I went, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's, that's quite <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> um, So you wrote a book entitled Beating the Odds, Raising Academically Successful African-American Males, and this was well before universities were applying data and analytics. yeah.
2: Yeah. Tell
1: me, how has your thinking changed since that book was published?
2: Sure, we published that one, and then the one on African-American women, and, uh, yep, and um, um, first of all, some of the lessons are the same. We based our discussions on focus groups with those students and their families. And the question was, what did you do to help your son or your daughter uh, become good in math or like math or science? And so we were listening, that part remains the same, listening to the voices of students and their families, I think is very important, right? Especially as we talk about first-generation college students, students of color. But secondly, um, we have more sophisticated techniques now in the use of analytics so that while we were doing some things that might involve some statistical measurement now uh, data science is the name of the game this intersection of computing and stats statistics and so we are far more sophisticated in understanding how what somebody might say will relate to what we can see from their backgrounds you see the quality of the high school, the rigor of the coursework, the attitude of the student, the intended major, the level of education of parents. We can take all that and use qualitative and quantitative data and determine which students we need to give more attention to even from the beginning. And the best news is this, while those two books were based on the high achieving Mahaus, we now have taken lessons learned to help students of all races who may not be the highest achieving, but yeah. who still can be supported in moving to the next level. That has been the beauty of taking lessons learned. And that, just as right now, we're looking at lessons learned involving COVID, same idea.
1: We find the same thing. Mm-hmm. Things that are good for one group are often good for everyone. That's
2: exactly right. And, and, and at the center of it, Sally, do you really care about the students? Do we? What does it mean? really care. I use this statement that I tell new students when their parents were in college, they were fortunate to go. The dean would say, look at the student to your left and look at the student to your right. One of you will not graduate. And People still say that. I think that's an awful thing to say because what it means is you're already telling so many of the students, you're not going to make it. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if I'm at all immature little kid, freshman, I'm saying, oh my God, he's talking about me. So I may as well have a good time because I'm not going to be here anyway. In contrast, we say, look to your left, look to your right. Our goal is to make sure all three of you graduate. And if we don't, if you don't, we fail, and we don't plan to fail. It's that mindset, setting a tone that says we can do this. We're in this together.
1: So true. I was pre med when I started yeah. university, and I remember the weed out courses. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, you know, I said that. I said this at a major national agency that so many students who start off in pre-med become great lawyers and everybody laughed. And I said, it's because these are the two professors people think about, medicine and law so often, right? And and, and the difference is that in the social sciences, if you can read and think well, you can at least get a B. You may not be super talented, but you can do okay. But if I give you a a, a math test that has five problems or a chemistry test with five problems, three you've seen before and two I change around, if you've not worked with other people to figure out how I might change them around, and you only have an hour, you may know the work and you still get a D. And good students, when you go to universities, you've been an excellent student, and all of a sudden you get a C or a D, and you go, Oh my God, it's not for me. It's not for me. And we do that. And so even when looking at, I mean, and the more prestigious the university, the greater the chances the students will leave science. And it's it's this well-kept secret because nobody wants to go out saying I didn't do well. We just moved. So literally, uh, the, the the general counsel for this big national agency said, you just told my story. I went to one of the most prestigious. I have perfect SAT. I got a C in chemistry. I went home and told them I love something else. You know, and so it is, it's the story of America right now. It's a challenge that we face.
1: I, I have to say that's my story as well. My first chemistry test freshman yep. year, I got a 39%. I had never gotten anything below an A before. Yeah. And yep. just signaled yep. to me that that probably wasn't yep. the path for me. Yep.
2: And I, I tell my colleagues in STEM and the faculty in the humanities and social sciences are more more caring. Usually anyway, there's a there's more of support there. We in math and science tend to be focused on the problem sometimes more than the students. And that's not always the case, but often it is. It's our personalities and the need to become more nurturing. And so at UMBC, the Chemistry Discovery Center is designed to do just that, to make sure we are more nurturing. to have people working in groups to give them more feedback and to tell them you can do this. And as a result, we've seen much larger numbers of students succeeding and going on to grad school in chemistry, biochemistry, computer science, but also in connecting the humanities and social sciences to other disciplines, uh, digital humanities, imaging and digital arts, a lot of fascinating interdisciplinary programs.
1: So you recently retired, uh, announced that you're going to retire in June. I, yes. I actually emailed your CBO Lynn Schaefer when that announcement came out and said, this is the end of an era, <laughs> which it is. Um, what do you want to focus your energies around in this next chapter of your life?
2: Sure, sure. You know, and 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 Lynn Schaefer has re- retired too. And but but she is so brilliant. I know she's gonna be consulting and helping a lot of people. Let me just say, I, I made the mistake of saying I was retiring. I'm retiring from UMBC, but I am not retiring from Harriet. Uh, I am so excited about this next chapter. And people say, well. Don't you feel bad about leaving? No, I am so proud of my colleagues and students at UMBC, and I'm leaving. We have become research one. I didn't think we'd do that before I left. And it it had a lot to do with the fact that we were already high achieving in science and tech. We had not invested as much 10 or 15 years ago in the humanities and social sciences. Now we've built all those areas up so comprehensively we're at that research one level, which is great for the research. But at the same time, I want to say we still put a lot of attention on those students and teaching, undergrad and grad. With that said, I will be working with national agencies. I enjoy working with new presidents and provosts and boards in the Harvard program, uh, but I'll be working with universities around the country Um, using uh, the book, The Empowered University, and the new book we're working on right now about this period, this COVID period. And I'll be working with Howard Hughes, medical institutions, uh, and with the national agencies on trying to move the needle, meaning to increase representation of people of color and women in selected STEM areas. That's my passion and that's what I'll be doing.
1: Um, You know, I lead our work with uh, presidents at at, uh, EAB and one of the conversations we've been having is just how much the presidency has changed.
2: Yes, yes.
1: I'd love to get your perspective across your 30 year experience as president. How have you observed or experienced that presidency changing?
2: There's several things. The obvious way is that technology has changed us all in so many ways. Yes. When I when I first became president, people were still using typewriters. <laughs> they had begun the computers where it was okay to use a typewriter. And nobody ever expected you to get back to them within the same day. You know, in terms of responses, now if you don't get back to people with an email within 24 hours or less, people are thinking you're not being responsive. Uh and so technology has made us, we're moving faster and And as a result, there's a positive and a negative side to that. Uh, Sometimes we're not able to reflect and to be as thoughtful as we need to be because we just got to get an answer out. People expect presidents to weigh in on all kinds of things. I think there's more light shining on our values than ever. People want to know, do you have the courage to say when you think think something is wrong, for example? Uh, And then because society is so divided, um, we as presidents are asked to think about what do we do to work towards consensus of some types, because our campuses are microcosms of society. And so the first thing I say when students say, oh, it's never been this bad. We're so divided. I said, no. If you go back to the 60s, either the 1960s or the 1860s, you will see these divisions. and say, And you'll see our forefathers beating up on each other. Think about uh, Burr and Hamilton, people shooting each other. So, so let's not think it was the good old days. And for some of us, it really wasn't the good old days. So no, and so I think a part of the role of a president and of leaders in higher education is to elevate the conversations, to use the humanities and ethics, and philosophy and history to put our situation in context to help people understand how we in this country are connected to other countries. And for me, and what I'll be doing for the next rest of my life, is helping those of us in higher education understand we have a responsibility to people who have not benefited from higher education. To make sure first, we're not being condescending. Secondly, to try to put ourselves in their shoes. And third, to create, to develop language we can use to pull families into this work. When I was in jail, I didn't know that only about 10% of Americans had graduated from college, and only about 3 or 4% of Blacks, you see? Um, today, we're up to over 30%, but two-thirds of Americans still don't know the higher education experience through a four-year institution. Um, and people don't realize that so many, almost half, 40-some percent of all students begin in community colleges. So the importance of two- and four-year institutions We've got to to help people understand that, number one. And to counter the narrative that higher education may not matter as much. You know, uh, on my forehead is the name, Dr. Kismikia Corbett. She is our graduate, who is the first Black woman to ever create a vaccine. She and Dr. Bonnie Graham at NIH Created that that vaccine associated with Moderna and Pfizer, the mRNA technique technology. That is one of our students coming out of rural North Carolina, coming to UMBC, going back to Chapel Hill, getting a PhD, postdoc at NIH, and then scientists there and leading the team with Dr. Bonnie Graham to create this vaccine. And if if there's any point that we can make about how higher education matters, imagine where we would be as as a human, as the human society if we had not developed the vaccine. you know, That's just one example in public health of what higher education does. And imagine if we don't take advantage of all the talent that we have. A, a little girl of color who comes through, gets the opportunity, and then helps to create the vaccine. That should make the point. So I tell CEOs, when you take that vaccine, remember the face of a young Black woman who created it. <laughs> okay. And that's... And we've got to have those narratives to help people understand why higher education matters. And that we've got to do a better job in helping many more people who start college to graduate from either two
1: or four year institutions. We are very aligned on that point. Um, just in, a, a final question for you um, as you speak to our audience, um, yeah. many of them are looking to seek a, a leadership position or are already in leadership positions across higher ed, perhaps yeah. our future presidents. Sure. What advice do you have for those folks?
2: Sure. You know, I, I look at our team of leaders from chief technology officer all the way over to the people who are involved in enrollment management. And, and what I would say is this, we need in our institutions to be giving students and faculty and staff and administrators opportunities to solve problems. And I think, and to listen to the voices of staff and of students and of faculty and of alumni and That's of the general public as we work to solve problems. And the, the, the people who will move up in the leadership rank ranks will be those who first of all are selfless, who are more concerned about helping others, students or colleagues with their work than about themselves, number one. Um, people who can show people they can be trusted. When I'm working with new leaders, presidents, provost deans, I'm saying, nothing is more important than your integrity, than your character, all right? And the idea has to be this. If you are an excellent thinker and you are with those values to say that will say authenticity matters, People will notice you. And curiosity, so important. Asking good questions. I always quote, I, Robbie, the Nobel laureate who grew up in the 40s in New York, said that when he was growing up, all of his friends' mothers would ask them at the end of a school day, what did you learn in school today? He said, not my Jewish mother. He said, my mother would say, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? Uh. I am always fascinated with people who can ask the question nobody has thought about. So think about just creating that environment that encourages asking good questions, whether in the use of technology or in having focus groups or in dealing with challenges, very important to do that. And that's what we've learned during the post-COVID period, the importance of asking good questions.
1: thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and your amazing contribution to to higher education.
2: Thank Thank you. you, Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week for the 100th episode of Office Hours with EAB. Joining us on the podcast is highly influential Inside Higher Ed editor, Scott Jacek, who shares what he considers to be the top trends and news stories impacting higher education today. You won't want to miss it. Until then, thank you for your time.